Medic! Welcome back, everybody. Medic Up Podcast, episode number 15. Brand new podcast for you guys. Today, we've got Dr. Carrie Yergi on the show, and she is double board certified in general surgery and surgical critical care trauma surgeon. She's a very big supporter of pre-hospital care, EMTs and paramedics. Uh, We're going to talk about hemorrhage control, trauma surgery, emerging trends in trauma care. Episodes brought to you by our sponsors, Fuel the Machine Apparel. Fuel the Machine Apparel, based on the idea of not just a brand, but a lifestyle. Fuel the Machine Apparel is pro-health, pro-first responder, and pro-military. Fuel the Machine believes you need to take care of yourself before you can help others. It's a first responder-owned and operated business. All their designs are created and printed in the USA. They are their own quality control. Fuel the Machine Apparel, be the solution, not the problem. Go check them out at www.fuelthemachineapparel.com. Go check out their shirts, check out their hoodies, um, and they got a lot of cool designs out there. I just picked up my Death Fighter shirt. Awesome. Looks great. Fits great. Super cool. Like I said, seriously, these these aren't your, they're not the cheesy fire department, you know, race the reaper, I fight what you fear t-shirts. These are, these are high speed. They look cool. You'll be proud to wear them. Go check out the designs. Pick up a hoodie. Pick up a t-shirt. www.fuelthemachineapparel.com. Also sponsored by Medical Gear Outfitters, owned and operated by a paramedic with a mission to equip individuals with top quality supplies, training, and mindset they need to empower themselves to respond to an emergency. Medical Gear Outfitters has the equipment and the training you need to be ready. Head over to www.medicalgearoutfitters.com to check out their selection of pre-made first aid kits and trauma kits. If you're looking for a stop the bleed kit, Medical Gear Outfitters has you covered. Do you want to build your own kit? They've got the bags, the pouches, the supplies you need to build a purpose-built kit to your specifications. Everything from the at-home family first aid kit for bumps, bruises, scrapes, stings, to individual first aid kits for the first responder, work kits, car kits, larger kits for active violence or mass wounding events, they've got it all. Need something specific and you don't see it on the website? Shoot them an email, they'll get you squared away. Free shipping on all orders. If you use the link in the show notes, uh, you'll get 10% off. Like I said, always have free shipping. Go check them out, www.medicalgearoutfitters.com. And remember, you never know when you'll be the first responder. Get the right gear and the right training, Medical Gear Outfitters. Good? Sounds good. All right, cool. So today on the Medic Up podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Carrie Yergi, MD. She's the assistant professor or an assistant professor of surgery with the Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Surgery Division at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City. So she's pretty high speed. Um, One of my internet friends, (laughs) I guess you can say, one of my internet friends uh, who I found through social media and then just through interaction found out that she's pretty high speed and um, she's on our side, boys and girls, uh, doing a lot of outreach for the pre-hospital side and, you know, big believer in evidence-based medicine, helping the paramedics and the EMTs out there get the right information so they can take care of people. Um, Big believer in hemorrhage control. I would, I would dare say an expert in her field. So thanks for coming on. No problem. Um, This is exciting for me. So, um, you're the first. You're the first guest who sent a complete bio, except like who actually cared. 
and there's a ton of stuff here. And I, I'll, I'll throw some bullet points, and you can fill in the blanks. Uh, let's see. So, Dr. Yergi, uh, native Californian, uh, graduated uh, cum laude from Notre Dame, earned her medical degree from University of Chicago, the Pritzker School of Medicine, did her general surgery residency at UNC Chapel Hill, and then headed over to St. Louis University for some surgical critical care fellowship and the completion of her general surgery residency. Then she did some trauma critical care practice in Phoenix, Arizona, and then took over the role of trauma medical director at, I don't know what HSHS St. John's Hospital is, but she was doing it. And, and then two years ago in 2017, she joined the University of Kansas Department of Surgery uh, as an assistant professor of surgery. And she's board certified, double board certified, in general surgery and surgical critical care and strong passion for trauma and critical care. And within the field, uh, her interests are pre-hospital outreach and education, disaster preparedness, injury prevention, tactical medicine, hemorrhage control. She's an instructor in ATLS, tactical combat casualty care. Um, she does it all. Uh, and like I said, guys, She's on our side, and she wants to she wants to help us help people. So, especially in the realm of trauma and critical care. So, I I thank you for coming on. And uh, what did I miss? Did I miss anything? No, thank you. That's such a nice intro. Um, yeah, no, that, uh, it sounds really impressive when you say it that way. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think for the the kind of my summary of all of that stuff, if you ever asked me kind of how I ended up where I am doing what I love, I'm just, yeah, I am just a kid who didn't quit. Um, you know, I, this has been a very long, hard road and it's 14 years worth of training and, and schooling before I actually, you know, graduated from my training and became an, an attending surgeon. Um, and if you told me at the very beginning that it would be 14 years, there's absolutely not a chance that I would have gone through with any of it. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a passion and it's my, my joy. It's the thing that I love the most. And really all I did, um, you know, people kind of always ask like, well, how do I get there? Or how did, how did you end up in that place? I just put my head down and did the next indicated thing. First it was high school and I wanted to do really well because I wanted to get into a good college, but my only focus was on preparing myself for college. And then in college, my really only focus was finding, you know, topics that really interested me and made me passionate. Um, and that happened to be pre-med. And so all I was focused on was the MCAT and getting into a good med school. Um, I have no idea why they let me into the University of Chicago. <laughs> None, not even a slight clue. Uh, I think I just must have interviewed well or something, but um, got in there and, you know, again, the only thing that I was focusing on at any given point in time on any day was just passing my classes and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life and what was going to make me happy and light my fire. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a long list of, of a, a winding course of 14 plus. Now it's more like, um, gosh, I don't know, 20 plus years, but um, it's it's been an, an adventure. And, and all I did was put one foot in front of the other and just let myself be open to falling in love with, with subject matter, even if it was going to be a lifestyle that maybe wasn't super awesome. Um, just, 
I had to do what I loved because otherwise, I don't know, work is too painful. (laughs) So, so So how do you, I mean, you say you have to do what you love. I mean, how did you know, how did you know uh, what part, like, was it in high school or college where you were like, I know you said pre-med where you're like, okay, this is, this is the, this is a career path for me. I mean, I'm not even getting into did I, why did I pick surgery? I mean, I, I work with some of the medical students local and they, they, you know, they're, you always ask them in their second year, they're like, Oh my God, I don't know. I'm still just trying to see what all the specialties are and just getting to understand. So. Yeah, I had, I had an inkling from the time that I was super young because my father was an oral surgeon. Um, and I used to go into the office and he just had this way of, earning patients trust by being calm and honest and really gently walking them through what was otherwise a scary thing, you know, having an in-office procedure. Um, and so I, I think I really was so, I looked up to him so much because patients trusted him and he earned that. And I just thought, gosh, what an honor, you know, these people come in and they're terrified and my father's able to walk them through and calm them down, um, and, and get them better. And then they turn around and thank him. And so I kind of, that was my first inkling. I also had an uncle who's an internal medicine physician who is, again, same thing, just my hero. I mean, I just thought it was so cool that when my family and friends and and neighbors were worried or scared or had a medical question, they would call my uncle. Um, So that was was my inkling. But I really, um, I just wanted to help people. I came from a background where that was really all that I knew. And so I just wanted to find a way to help people that fit with my personality. I, I honestly had no, I was so naive when I was younger. I had no idea about the reality of what that means to go through, you know, college and you have to get all these test scores and medical school and yada, yada, yada. All I knew was that I, I needed to help people to be fulfilled. And I wanted to do it in a way where I had the honor and the privilege of being able to earn people's trust when they were scared. Um, so that's how it started, uh, at the, at the very beginning. And then in, in, in college, it was the decision of, do I go to dental school and father follow my father or do I go to medical school? And I just, I wasn't comfortable kind of focusing on just one thing. I wanted to be good at a lot of different things and I wanted to know about a lot of different things. So that was that piece of the decision. Um, and I certainly, you know, we certainly can talk whenever you want about, the decision of, you know, a woman in medical school deciding to become a surgeon, which <laughs> is kind of a trip in and of itself. But um, does that answer your? I hope that answers the question. No, about it, how no, I, it absolutely does. I ended does. up finding a, a field in medicine no, in I'm, general. No, that's great. I mean, you know, you have you have that family input, and I think I, I think a lot of people are, you know, uh, they have that advantage or they have that good background. Like you, you had. You're outside of your comfort zone because you're not following the dental school route, but you had at least two people in your family you could always talk to during medical school, you know, that support system versus, you know, I've I've met a few medical students who are like, I don't know if this is for me. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know if this is for you? You interviewed at like eight schools. You got in here. You're spending a ton of money. What do you mean you don't know? They're like, oh, I'm just trying it out. I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> well, you, you know, and you talk to them. You talk to them a few years down the road um, because our local medical school, the first year, they get their EMT certification. And I had adjuncted there for a few years to help them help them get that program going. And um, 
you know, they thought it was, it was very beneficial. Um, it, it showed where the patients come from and then how they get to the hospital and then where the doctor is going to send them back to. And, um, you know, they're, they were all pretty, pretty appreciative of, of that program. And now, you know, three, four, five years later, I'm seeing these, these, these first year students that I taught as EMTs and they're now they're first year residents. And I'm like, Hey, do I'm like, Hey, you, you're in the ED. They're like, Oh yeah, I'm in the ED because this is what I wanted to do. I'm like, did EMT play into that? Well, a little bit, but, um, you know, it's cool to see it kind of come full circle. And then those were some of the people who had no idea. And then they kind of found it on their way through medical school and said, Hey, you know, that was the, that was the tipping off point was that first ride in the ambulance. And I was like, yeah, well, I'll do this in the, in the ED. So it's good. It's good to see. And I, I absolutely, I guess I get it, which is good. It's better than just kind of most of us paramedics. This was a fallback job and we weren't good at anything else. And we happened to be sort of good at this and got better as we went on. But um, what led you on the, the trauma critical care? I mean, I know you said we could talk for hours about that, but what, I mean, surgery I've done, I've been in the, I've been in the OR to do innovations for school. And uh, we were very fortunate where we were. Those surgeons would say, hey, do you want to stay and watch a surgery? Like, I've watched someone take a kidney out one day. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll stay. And uh, our instructor asked us, like, you know, what would you get out of that? I was like, mm, human body smells funny when it's cut open. Like, that's what I got. <laughs> um, so not for me. I'm glad you do it. Um, and when you say about, you know, you wanted to learn a lot of things, uh, I would say rooting around in somebody's insides doing life-saving damage control type surgery is uh, a lot of things. So, Yeah, you know, I went into medical school pretty much like 100% convinced that I was going to do peds. And then I did my surgery rotation as a medical student. Um, I did it in the third block where that's the time when all the gunners do it. Uh, so I've, I I've, I've learned that term. I, I, I learned that yeah. term the second year I was teaching EMT. Wow, that is a universal thing. Oh, it's for it, is, but it is for real. Wow. Like these kids were hardcore. Oh, they told it me was, all about it. I, I witnessed it yeah. too. Yeah. So, so I just I was real intimidated, and I always, you know, any peripheral contact I'd ever had with surgeons, I was like, dude, these guys are jerks. Like they're arrogant, they're condescending, they're nasty, they have nasty <laughs> personalities. So I just I just went into it completely like, well, all I got to do is survive this one rotation. And so I, I made it through and I had a chief resident that really was very engaging and did a ton of teaching and was just a good egg um, and got me engaged and, you know, taught me how to do a central line and actually let me put my hands on stuff and let me, you know, stitch wounds closed at the end of these laparoscopic cases. And every day I would walk out like at 8 p.m., you know, exhausted and it's cold as hell in Chicago. So I'm cold and I'm tired. And I would call my folks like late at night, be like, I just got out of the OR and he let me do this and I got to touch that. And for me, having been, I've, I've always been a, a really concrete physical kid. I mean, I was always on team sports and to me, surgery was always kind of felt like this really neat iteration of a team sport, but I've also always been good with my hands and I've liked working with my hands. And I think some of the athletics played into that. And so for me, engaging in the intellectual piece, but also what I really fell in love with, and this destroyed my, my pediatrics rotation for me, which came next, which is, you know, wonderful field, but just, you don't actually physically do anything. And so that's what, that's what really got me, um, just hooked me about surgery was I can physically put my hands on something with a physical skill set that, oh, by the way, I happen to have an aptitude for, and I can change somebody's life. 
immediately instant gratification. You know that you got the right answer. You know that you helped them right away as soon as you're done with the surgery. And so it's kind of that combination of being physically engaged in patient care and having a physical skill set that goes along with the intellectual component. Um, it's a little bit of team sports, which have always been one of my loves. And that combination of things, I just, I was like a moth to a flame. I couldn't walk away after that. Even though I knew that the lifestyle kind of wasn't a great thing, I didn't know anything really about the lifestyle or the pay or anything. Um, I just kind of fell in love with it. And that's, and that's what I say when I, you know, I'm just a kid who fell in love. I just, I went into this pretty blindly <laughs> and I just allowed myself to enjoy the things that I enjoyed without trying to talk myself out of it. Like, oh, well, the lifestyle or, you know, I just didn't talk myself out of the things that I loved. That's all. What did you go? Did you go the opposite route of that? And did you kind of immerse yourself into it? Like, hey, let me figure Let me let me get as much exposure and experience as I possibly can to be awesome at this or like right when you knew or was it kind of a, a gradual thing? I let um, I let med school finish out. I did the rest of my rotations and kind of finished out what I was meant to do um, and, you know, checked off my checky boxes and then uh did some sub eyes during my last year um, and got even more exposure to surgery, which really just confirmed for me um, because that was, that was my final decision in medical school was, do I do emergency room? Cause I really, I love it down there. Um, Who talks do I like do... that? <laughs> I love it down there. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's always, it's so exciting. I know. I mean, come to, come to find out as a surgical resident, you know, that come to find out I'm actually kind of an adrenaline junkie, which I, I would not have known otherwise. <laughs> And you guys definitely, I mean, that's what the ER is all about is oh my God, um, the ER. <laughs> seeing a ton of different kinds of stuff and a little bit of adrenaline. Sometimes it's fast. Sometimes it's slow. you got to be real adaptable and very resilient. Um, but for me, it just wasn't enough to not know what happened to people. Like, did I get the right answer? And that was, that, that was how I ended up in surgery was I had the ability to follow patients over time and establish relationships with them. So I got kind of that positive feedback of knowing, yeah, we did get the answer correct or no, this is what it turned out to be. Awesome. That's, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, that perspective is, is I think spot on, um, you know, again with the ER, but I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you're down there and you're definitely getting a lot of the patients from there out of the trauma bay and whatever else. Um, but I always kind of say, you know, and now again, I, uh, limited experience. I drop you off at the ER. I wash my hands of you and maybe I see you on the next run and can kind of follow up or I can get our medical control to kind of follow up. But I always say to people, again, especially when the ER gets bad or sometimes when I have my rotations with my students, I'll just say, you know, listen, um, if I was going to give the hospital an enema, the ED is where I would stick the tube like 100%. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Yeah. So my whole family is law enforcement first responders. Um, I ended up falling in love with trauma critical care as a surgical resident, did my fellowship um, and got out and uh, did did my training at SLU, which is a C-STAR center. And so they train up a bunch of folks who are going to be deployed out to combat, a bunch of medical um, folks who are going to be deployed out to combat. So they would, they would rotate through SLU with us. And so I got exposure to this whole other mindset of trauma care and kind of in an austere environment and how that is different and how mm -hmm. to apply, how do you ap apply the same trauma concepts 
in a different environment. And so I kind of got turned on to it then. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think when I was in Arizona, mm-hmm. it really was a natural um, follow through for me. So I, I went to a conference and listened to Alexander Eastman speak. Mm-hmm. He's a trauma surgeon like me, but he was talking about his role on the Dallas SWAT team. And my eyes just lit up listening to him talk because I didn't know there was such a thing as physicians who got to you know deploy with a SWAT team. And so after that, I went and I got my tactical combat casualty care certification, ended up becoming an instructor. Um, and that is where I fell in love with it because it's, it's the intersection of everything that I love. It's trauma care. It's good pre-hospital med- medicine that is primarily focused and tailored around the environment in which it's being applied. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, they don't teach you any of that stuff in medical school and I didn't learn it in residency. And so kind of Again, it, it really engaged me intellectually about what a cool thing it is to figure out how you can apply the same principles in a very rugged um, environment that kind of combined everything that I loved into one field of practice. So I was out in Arizona and worked with a SWAT team out there um, after being approached by one of their fire medics. And I really loved that and then transitioned out to Illinois um, and trained up probably close to about 450 Mm -hmm. officers. Um, I was working with their mobile training unit and then trained up the Springfield Police Department, all 250 of their officers in uh, hemorrhage control and kind of a very boiled down uh, nitty gritty uh, march algorithm. So that was, you know, again, just so much fun. I just really enjoy first responders. and there's challenges that go along with that, um, many, many of them. But I think as long as I've been doing stuff that I've loved, I've always been happy. And that was that was a passion project. So, so how far did you get into uh, like? So were you going on call outs with the teams, or as a as a tactical physician, or just a physician at the time? And I don't put titles onto it, but I mean, most people say tactical physician when they're attached to the team, or. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was working with those guys, um, started out in kind of a consulting um, role uh, because they had some absolutely phenomenal fire medics that were already, um, had had already gone through SWAT school and were activated and were deploying. So that was, I actually learned a lot from those guys about the actual hands-on practice of tactical medicine, which was very cool. And how about like the like the unfun stuff, like the medical threat assessment side, and the, so like you know a lot of people uh, when they kind of get started, they start learning about a uh, learn of tactical medicine. They think it's kind of starts and stops with TCCC. You know, the first fifteen minutes after I've been shot or someone's been shot, self aid, buddy aid, so on and so march algorithm. But then like you know you look on the 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 actual TEMS side, tactical emergency medical support, you realize, you know, the NTOA finally picked up the 18 facets of, of, of tactical medicine, medical threat assessment, medicine across the barricade, canine care, all that kind of stuff. And they go, wow, there's actually, there's a lot more to this than just putting tour- tourniquets on really tight and uh, wound packing and chest deco and all this cool stuff. So, you know, nobody, nobody likes the unglamorous part of um, when, you know, the local diner donates, you know, a hundred tuna fish sandwiches that somebody left out in the sun for an hour and a half. And now all of a sudden, you know, all your wound packing skills go out the window and you're like, where's, where's my shit pills? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. So no, and there's, that's true. There's a bunch of ock health that goes into it too. Keeping those guys who have to be able to function at a very high level functioning at a very high level. Um, and you know, knowing, so for instance, 
kind of the ethical and privacy issues with knowing which of your teammates are on anticoagulant, for instance, um, because they've got AFib. Um, that kind of stuff was a, a deep dive into a whole nother world that can be very, it's very different from my day-to-day environment and it can be very challenging, but it's, it's a challenge that I really enjoy uh, for sure. But yes, there's a whole huge world of tactical medicine that is, like you mentioned, so much more than just how to deal with a gunshot wound. Right. Um, it's the, again, the unfun stuff. Like, I don't, do I really have to fill out the medical threat assessment? We're just going out on a, we're just going out on a vice warrant. Come on. It's like, well, you know where the trauma center is. Fill it, fill out the blanks, make the phone calls, do what you're, do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, I think, again, it's that mundane stuff, but that's the stuff that makes all the cool stuff go a lot smoother when something bad happens or, you know, again, you've planned for it and everything else. So, and again, in the physician side of it, I, you know, I, I, w- I was very fortunate uh, when I was an EMT in paramedic school, uh, our local, our local uh, SWAT team in the middle of Pennsylvania, uh, our medical director was on the team and he was so hands-on he would involve the EMTs. He would he would he would listen to anything. I mean, he just dove into it and wanted the best for for the, the guys he was taking care of, whether it was on the team, the regular cops, whoever ended up on callouts. And you know, he was he was extremely forward thinking. And it, that was the first time I ever met a physician that was attached to a tag team, which was great. Um, and then to have him be our medical director and open to so many, so many different ideas that those guys would throw at him. It was, it was great. So, um, so it was pretty, probably pretty easy for you to kind of make that kind of sh- not, sh- I don't want to say shift, but easy to kind of back the stop the bleed initiative and everything like that. Right. Yeah. Because that's, <clears throat> that's part and parcel to, you know, I'm TCCC trained as opposed to TECC trained, but for us, that March algorithm, that's the key to everything. And, and as soon as my I went through that course and my paradigm got shifted to the, the critical and paramount importance of hemorrhage control first, first, first. Um, and then you and, and then, you know, over the time that I've been, you know, growing up and developing an awareness about what's going on in the country as a surgical resident, I kind of lived in a bubble. I didn't have a clue what was going on politically. But then I got out and I was an attending watching school shootings happen with a, a, a devastating frequency that's escalating. Um, that I think that skill set is just too easy. You know, one of my medics and I used to joke, you know, you could you could train a monkey and you could have kicked him out of out of a, an aircraft in Vietnam and a trained monkey could have brought, you know, twenty five hundred soldiers home just purely with good extremity hemorrhage control. Um, And I think the same is true of Mm -hmm. civilian stop the bleed initiatives. Now I, I just, it is not that hard. I, I genuinely feel like any school teacher, any principal, anybody who works anywhere around in or around a soft target, I feel like that is as critical a skill as being able to do high quality chest compressions for CPR knowing when to do it and how to do it and some of the kind of finer points, I, you know, I, I genuinely believe that we can teach non-medical lay people how to do that with a, with a two-hour class. I mean, they need to be refreshed every once in a while, but I do feel like that's possible. Interestingly, what I wasn't expecting is I got involved with Stop the Bleed. There's a lot of naysayers. 
There's a lot of people that are like, oh, well, we need to make tourniquets easier to use. Dude, it doesn't get any easier to use than Velcro and a spinning, you know, bar. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I've, I've been surprised that people mm-hmm. want to create controversy about Stop the Bleed or, I don't know. There, that part's been really interesting to me. But yeah, I'm a huge advocate, huge believer in large part because TCCC taught me the paramount importance of hemorrhage control. Right. You know, and that's one of the problems that that I think uh, I'm wrestling with a little bit. So, you know, I I kind of got in on the tourniquet and the tactical medicine side uh, right when registry, even before even National Registry put uh, a commercial tourniquet on their check sheet. And, you know, we immediately moved toward that. We got tourniquets on our all of our county vehicles here at EMS uh, in, in, in Greenville. And, you know, it moved forward. You know, TCCC hosted or um, NAEMT hosted the TCCC material open source on their website. And anybody could take it. And then all of a sudden, everybody and their grandmother is teaching a pared-down TCCC course with, like, zero credentials. Me included. Because I wanted to give it to my paramedic students as a way to address life-threatening hemorrhage and those type of situations when they hit the street on their first day. So I would take out all the cool small unit tactics and stuff that wasn't available to the, you know, civilian pre-hospital setting until, you know, CTEC committee gets created in 2011 and then they come up with a set of guidelines and I went, oh, thank God, now I can just teach more in our lane. This is way more specific to the civilian pre-hospital care provider whether it's an EMT, EMR, paramedic, whatever. And it was easier to go from there. Stop the Bleed initiative comes out. Um, you know, well, I'm kind of proud of that. Uh, the actual video through the White House was actually filmed here. Uh, like the little rollout video was filmed here. And that, it actually sat like really dormant for almost a full year. And no one knew what it was. And I was like, guys, it was filmed here. We should be taking the, the lead on this. Um, but now when you say about the naysayers, it seems just like CPR, just like public access defibrillation, it took it's taking forever to catch on. You know, only in the last you know five ten years, we're hitting that uh, hands only CPR. Step up, uh, do something. Something's better than nothing. Push fast, push hard. Call nine one one. You don't necessarily need to be certified in in a in a adult CPR card to to do a good job. And we track that, and we see our cardiac arrest, our pre-hospital cardiac arrest survival, or out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival go up, um, you know, with our our um, chain of survival. But it seems like it's taken a, a, a slower time with the stop the bleed, especially when you're seeing all these school shootings, uh, and like you're saying, soft targets, the hospitals, the office buildings, things like that. Um, and that's start that's kind of bothering me. Like I just personally, uh, my kids' school. Um, they were both, uh, at the time they were both in elementary school in the same school. And I went to their, they got a brand new principal. I sent her an email. Um, and I said, listen, uh, this is who I am. This is where, where I work. This is what I do. Uh, I want to offer, and there's, I think there was like 89, uh, staff and faculty members in this elementary school. I said, I will provide the training for free. All you need to do is eke out two hours in the afternoon somewhere or a couple two hour sessions. I'll bring all the equipment all free of charge. I don't need a pat on the back. I don't need anything. I'll bring my own lunch. I don't need nothing. I just want you guys to be trained because my kids go here. And I'm not saying something's going to happen, but I want you guys to, to, to learn this. 
wouldn't wouldn't happen. Didn't even want free training. Didn't want free training because again, it's, you know, if it's not coming from a big name tac med company or the local hospital trauma services, they don't want to hear it. Like, and, and it's like, listen, you, how can you guys afford not to go through this training? No, they can't. And and the the resistance that I've met with going into schools, they're afraid of the optics and they're afraid of what that means if they bring those kinds of programs in. They don't, and not to mention the fact that most of them just don't have the financial resources. Um, you know, we're, we're having to find grants, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I've seen so much fear and resistance to talking about school shootings and talking, you know, to, to really talking about those things in a meaningful way. And so much of that is based in fear. But, but I wanted to get back. You said something that was really interesting to me, and it's something that I've witnessed firsthand that really makes me cringe kind of the, the watering down of these original concepts. Um, so, I mean, the reason that I would personally engage in TCCC is not because I'm military, but it's because that's where all the source data comes from. There really is not good evidence base yet in civilian America. Um, and that's part of what we've been doing with IPSA is trying to figure out how to put out civilian guidelines for how to do tactical care um, when they're really, all of the data is military, um, all the good data set. They've got a captive audience. They've got a, a, a stats machine and a research machine that we will never have in civilian free hospital or civilian in hospital, well, civilian in hospital maybe. But, and so for me, it was, um, I really wanted to go to the source. And I, I think that we can use our common sense and we can figure out how to apply those fundamental principles um, to a different environment, i.e. the civilian U.S. pre-hospital environment. But for me, I just, I really worry about um, people taking credit for the amazing amount of energy and effort and research that went into the military initiatives. And so for me, I always kind of start with nothing but respect for that. Um, and, and I think that TECC has followed it in those footsteps and done a really amazing job. Um, but, but I just, the reason that I stay with TCCC, I think it gets updated more frequently. I think that the, the guys who are on that are really the original OGs who, who started this entire thing. But the other thing that I've seen now that I've been in, in the civilian TAC med side of things for, for an extended several years, um, there are a lot of people who just want to ride this train and they want to make money doing it. And you know, I'm not going to rail or kind of be nasty about it, but, um, you know, I'm not Betty Crocker, um, but I can, I can read a cookbook and I can, you know, put all the ingredients together and say, hey, there's a chocolate chip cookie at the end of this. And however, is that going to be as good as if Betty Crocker makes one and says, well, if I put in one extra pinch of salt, they're going to turn out this way. Somebody who has who has actually done the hands-on work to know what really works and what really doesn't, as opposed to what's getting read in a textbook or, you know, what's getting put out in TACMED guidelines. No, dude, I want to hear it from the guy who's done it a million times. Um, and that's the problem with this becoming an industry. Every every tourniquet, you know, company out there, even gun companies now, want to start putting out tourniquets. They have no idea what makes a good tourniquet. And it's the same with a lot of these training companies. They don't have guys with legitimate tactical experience and who also have legit medical certifications 
um, who really know how to make a damn chocolate chip cookie with their eyes closed because they don't need the cookbook. Um, and that's, that's one of the things, you know, you mentioned that. I, I think that's something that's really important. And, and the more that we disseminate this and the more people get involved um, who maybe or maybe don't have legitimate credentials or background to be doing so, I, I really worry about the message getting twisted and diluted. And, and I think that the recent TCCC kind of statements, their blanket statements about talking, talking about instructor drift and watering down the TCCC curriculum, I think that's legit. And, I, and I've seen it myself. Um, people are getting bad information. They're getting old information because they're not very carefully scrutinizing where they're getting their instruction from. But yeah, sorry to, sorry to digress, but I just, you know, you mentioned it, and that's one of the things that I, you know, over beers, I could probably bitch and moan for hours about <laughs> instructor drift and, and things of the like. No, absolutely. And again, it was one of those where I think it was, I mean, it really came from being the lesser of two evils. You know, the NAMT website, the PHTLS website, hosted the open source material from the military, and all of a sudden, everyone was an expert. And they didn't realize that, you know, there's quarterly meetings and they're changing that material. And then there was actually someone who was supposed to change that material and it didn't get done for a while. You know, and again, spoiled, I have, you know, I'm, I have the luxury of having a lot of those people very close to me up the highway who would every month send me something, send me the meeting minutes from TCCC committee. And I'm going, man, I can't wait until the civilian side of this comes out, because even on the even teaching a TECC course as, you know, contributor for CTEC and you know, follower them and then NEMT for the for the continuing education side for EMTs and medics. Every one of my any every one of my TECC courses starts out with, I don't wear a funny colored hat. I've never kicked indoors. Uh, I don't have prior military experience. This, we're not here for that. You're not going to be a PJ by the time you're done here. You're not going to be 18 Delta. You're not going to be a commando. You're not going to be SWAT guy. There's way more work. This is the very basics of of simple TECC skill sets for hemorrhage control and mitigating the three causes of battlefield death. And that's what you're here for. Where you go after this, five-day TAC med course, operator course, CONTOMS, that's where you need to go. You're not going to be, you can't come out of, you know, 16 hours of continuing education and step onto a SWAT team tomorrow, um, you know. And I'm not the guy to teach you that. We're not going to talk room clearance. We're not going to be doing dynamic. We're not going to be doing explosive breaching. We're not doing – that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, tourniquet the extremities, pack the junction, seal the box. That's what it's about. That's that's where it starts, and where you take that is where it's going to go. Civilian course, I'll give you the science to back it up, just like you said. I don't have a lot of data, and, it, again, I, I feel kind of I feel kind of like, you know, a ghoul. Every time there's a school shooting or a mass shooting, I'm like, ooh, can't wait for those autopsies to be released because we need to start trying to track where those injury patterns are because they're not the same as the military. So, you know, it feels it feels weird to be a part of that, but it seems it seems very stagnant all of a sudden where it, it should be moving forward. Like you're right, TCCC moves a lot faster with the whole blood administration right now. Yeah, you're not going to see that into a CTEC guideline. You're going to see it as a suggestion, but it's going to end up being get them to the trauma center where the blood lives because we're not going to bring it into the field quite yet. So hopefully one day, I mean, hopefully, hopefully it becomes more accessible and affordable. And I mean, the benefits are there, obviously. So, but yeah, I, I think it's going to get there. I think they're pushing it in Texas. I think there are some flight agencies that have um, whole blood. So 
I think it's going to get there. I think like everything Celian pre-hospital stateside, it's just going to take forever. Right. <laughs> right. And a, and a, and yeah. a big, a big bucket of money too. So that nobody wants to loosen up the purse strings on mostly. So, yeah. So no, that's, that's legitimate. 